While we were singing just now, I was just so struck by um, the power of God and really overwhelmed by it, but also by the way that God exercises his power in love. Okay. And so God, we turn our hearts and minds to you this morning, knowing that you uh, exercise your power in our lives in the name of love. And, And that's good because today I'm tired I am worn, I am weary, and so I am standing here before our spiritual family, resting on the promise that when I am weak, I am strong. And so God, we need, where we need your power to move, Father, would you come toward us, but would we see that movement toward us as love? As we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I have a seat. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're actually taking a pause on the book of Acts. I'll tell you why in a second. But Ephesians chapter 2. I can't remember a time in my life when I didn't know who Jesus is. Oh my gosh, Asher is walking by himself back there. Um... I can't remember a time in my life when I just didn't know who Jesus is and what he had done for me and for all of us. I'm fortunate in that respect. Not all of us grew up in homes like that. In fact, as we move into the future, fewer and fewer of us will, fewer and fewer people in our culture will say that's true. But when I got into the eighth grade, it came time for me to make a decision. Every single one of us, every single one of us, even you watching online, you have to, you have to come to a point where you decide what you're going to do with the message of Jesus, right? Because God doesn't have grandchildren. So just because your parents are cool doesn't mean you can be. So there, there comes a point where you personally have to decide what you're going to do with the message of Jesus. And so I was in eighth grade and ended up at a church because my grandmother issued an ultimatum, said to my mom, if you don't get that boy in church, I'm, you know, or else. And, uh, you know, I knew that, you know, the or else wouldn't be good. <laughs> So did my mom, and so there I was in a youth group, and it was during that time of my eighth grade year that I personally put my faith in Jesus, and I remember experiencing such joy and such peace, and some of you have said that. I I came to Jesus, and I experienced peace. I experienced joy, but as I continued to follow Jesus, I also noticed that I was bumping up against opposition, that it wasn't just easy peasy, easy peasy. It was, there was something going on. I noticed, as with many 14-year-olds, that there was a lust of the the flesh. I noticed a pride and an arrogance. I noticed a desire to buy into the worldly thinking that I saw so present in my school. When we become followers of Jesus, the road is not paved. In fact, Jesus says the road is narrow. And part of what makes it challenging is that we are opposed. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 and kind of walk through that just for a second, okay? Ephesians chapter 2, let's start in verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. This is your, this is your annual reminder that the gospel isn't about making bad people good people, it's about making dead people alive. It's not about making bad people better, it's dead people alive. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying obeying this devil. Am I cutting out? Or is it just me? A tiny bit? (sighs) Okay, give me 
give me that one. I won't be able to pop, lock, and drop it where I plan to in this sermon. Let's try this. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Verse 3, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger like everyone else. Some of you will have a translation that says, like all of us, we were children of wrath, right? So that's an interesting thing to think about, that we can be children of God's wrath while simultaneously being objects of his love. That's not something I fully understood until I became a parent, right? Because now I understand how I can be so overwhelmingly frustrated by Jack and so deeply and madly in love with him at the same time. I don't understand. It's crazy. Verse 4. What is the first word of verse 4, somebody? But. You said but in church. (laughs) But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united to Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us. Did you notice that? That in dead and trespasses and sin... The wealth of his what? Grace and kindness is shown in all he has done for us who have been united with Jesus. In that second paragraph, there's an emphasis on being united with Jesus or being one with him. In salvation, we're made one with Jesus so that everything that he experienced from cross to burial to resurrection is our experience too. It's applied to us. Verse 8, God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. I didn't have a lot of athletic game in high school, as you can probably tell, which is why Jack at like almost two still kind of doesn't know how to throw a ball, but that's not here or there. Um... What I did have was some academic game. So I was offered, I was offered merit-based scholarships to college, right? And I ended up going to a college where scholarships didn't really apply, but I was offered some. And uh, when you apply for those and you get them, the college will say, well, keep giving you this scholarship. You just got to keep your GPA at a certain level. And that's a lot of us how we think about salvation. I got in because my GPA was at this, because I'm a good person. And I'll, I'll stay in. See, there's the underside of that. I'll stay in if I keep my GPA at a point. What does Paul say? It is by grace you have been saved, not by works, so that none can boast. For we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, created us anew in Christ Jesus. We can do the good things long ago. See, Paul unpacks this radical transformation we experience in Jesus. But then he goes on to note, by the way, or he already has, these forces of opposition. So Malachi, I know you were waiting for me. Show me Ephesians, the Ephesians passage, Malachi. I think it's Ephesians 2, verses 2 and 3, or 1 through 3. Yeah, there you go. Thanks, Malachi. Right, he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the, dis, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. See, the early church fathers and mothers looked at this passage, and it helped them explain why we experience opposition and difficulty in our life with God. Because of the world, because of the flesh, because of the devil. Even as we are saved, even as we are made right with God, we encounter forces in this journey that's called sanctification, this lifelong process of being made after the image of Jesus. We encounter the world, we encounter the flesh, we encounter the devil, and they make our walk with Jesus difficult. And I was ruminating on this, and I walked into staff meeting a couple weeks ago, and I talked about how do we, these are these three things, here's how we combat them, how's God getting your attention? And our staff said, I feel like we need everybody to know this. So I went back and I looked at my sermon calendar, and wouldn't you know, I have an extra week. And so I want us to stop on our journey through the book of Acts to reflect on the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil, how these forces are seeking to oppose you, seeking to oppose me, making my walk with Jesus a challenge, and how are the, what are the spiritual resources that Jesus has given us for victory. I want this sermon, my hope is, my hope is to invite and encourage and equip for you to see that place of spiritual stuckness in your life and then suddenly see, oh, that's what that is. And for you to see then the, the spiritual resources that Scripture lays out for us to combat that. So we're going to talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're going to jump around in Scripture. So here we go. What is the world? When you read Scripture, you're going to see the phrase, the world, in a variety of places. It's going to mean... The world is in the earth. It's going to mean the human family. It's going to mean the created order. But sometimes the world, that phrase speaks to an external force of confusion. It speaks to a system of thinking that results in a pattern of behavior. A system of thinking that results in a pattern of behavior. So if you look at Isaiah 5 verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. See, that's what the world does. The system of thinking in the world takes right and wrong and it turns it over and makes wrong right and right wrong. It makes sweet bitter and bitter sweet. The, the thinking of the world, it's a pattern. It's a pattern of thinking that results in a, a pattern of behavior. It is results in a pattern of behavior that is opposed to a life for God. The world is made up of patterns of thinking. Let's just think about for a second materialism. Our culture, our world has a has system of thinking that results in a pattern of living that says the more I have, the happier I will be. Right? We have entire channels on our cable devoted to this. HGTV, the shopping channel. Amazon.com is built around the idea that you will be happier the more you get. But here's what happens is as we live as we live into that system of thinking and that pattern of living, we start to reap kind of unhelpful things. For example, materialism very often results in debt. There was this commercial a handful of years ago, and it was like this guy, and he's mowing his grass, and his kids are playing out front, and he's mowing his, and his house is beautiful, and the lawn is well done, and as he walks by with his mower, he smiles, and he says, I'm in debt up to my eyeballs, and just walks off. That is the fruit of materialism. And the world is made up of a variety of systems of thinking as it relates to our sexuality, our money, our possessions, our politics. The world tempts us to think 
after a certain system and then behave along the lines of that system. That is the world. It is external confusion. But we also experience internal disorder, don't we? It, and the Bible calls that the flesh. And the flesh is internal, but it doesn't just mean like literal like flesh. I'm working on this. I'm going to have it forever because my uncle has a bigger one. Don't worry, I inherited other good things like a receding hairline. There's this part of ourselves that remains outside of Jesus' lordship. Even as we're saved, there's an appetite and a hunger inside of us, isn't there? So there's a conversation happening, and you know the thing you should say, but oh, that thing you want to say is just so juicy, right? You're standing in front of the fridge at night and thinking, I don't need that apple pie, but I want it. You're up late at night clicking on the internet, and pretty soon the search results tend to skew in a certain direction. And Paul, in Romans, articulates this. He said, it is no longer I who do these things, but sin that dwells in me. For I know nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Have you ever felt that way? For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. I mean, this is what it is to have a toddler, right? Like, no, no, no. I mean, right? Our flesh is where the appetites that we have that are contrary to God's will, those are, that's where those, those appetites reside. Hunger for sex, for food, for romance, for safety. And Paul says that even though we've been saved, even though we've been made right with God, there is a part of our flesh that has yet to be crucified. There's a part of our flesh, an appetite, that we keep indulging to our destruction. See, there's the world, which is external confusion, the flesh, which is internal disorder, and then there's the devil, which is personal opposition. In 1 Peter 5, we read, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour and in Ephesians 6, Paul says, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Hear me on this. Someone who believes differently than you do in this political season is not your enemy. Right? They're not your enemy. Our battle is against flesh and blood. And by the way, Q and honors, if there is a deep state, this is it. But against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Oh, there's a deep state. Against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. See, Jesus tells us that Satan is the father of lies. He, Revelation tells us that he is the accuser of the brethren. It is Satan who tempts you to sin. And so you do that click or eat that pie, and then it's Satan who shows up and says, You jerk. You fatty. You, the accuser of the brethren. He gets you on both sides. And the enemy has two modes of operation. He has overt and covert. I've been to Africa. I've been to Cuba. It's overt there. Ken and Mary and Shay, retired missionaries from Taiwan, overt. Art and Pam, overt. That's what they experienced. But there's, there's covert, too. You know, go to Cuba and see demons cast out of people. Go to Cuba, see little girls with bracelets on their wrists that mean that their parents have dedicated them to an idol. I mean, it's already happening. But... But then we get to the West, oh, we're, we're too mature for that. Well, it's just, it's just covert. Do you know why it's covert? Paul McConaughey, who led our workshop this weekend, says this. The reason that the enemy operates so covertly in the Midwest is that even the most committed atheist, if he woke up in the middle of the night and there was a demon at the end of his bed, do you know what he would shout? 
he would shout the name of Jesus. <laughs> Probably more as a swear than as an invocation of prayer, but it still would make the enemy run. And, and, but there's this covert operation because the devil's stratagem is to use deceptive ideas from our world that play to disordered desires that are already normalized in a sinful society. And, and yes, as our culture gets more secular, and frankly, church, as we press into more of the kingdom and more of the Holy Spirit, we're going to see more overt and less covert. But spiritual opposition can manifest itself in irrational fear. It can manifest itself in irrational anger. It can manifest itself in sickness. We have the world, which is this system of thinking and external confusion. We have the flesh, which is this appetite and internal disorder. And then we have the devil, which is personal, not psycho psychological, but personal opposition. And as we follow Jesus, we're going to experience one, two, three, and various combinations at various times in our life. And scripture tells us that there is a specific response required for each one of these forces of opposition. See, when we counter the world, encounter the world, scripture tells us to avoid. Avoid. When we encounter the flesh, scripture tells us to flee. And, and when we encounter the devil, scripture tells us to stand. When we encounter the enemy, scripture tells us, when we encounter the enemy, scripture tells us to stand. We stand by waging spiritual warfare, by exercising the spiritual authority we have been given. Listen to what Paul says in First Peter, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 5. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Resist. Stand. Then after the battle, you'll be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. And by the way, before I go on, all of these pieces of armor in Ephesians 6 are pieces of armor that God wears in Isaiah. So this is God opening up his armory and saying, wear my stuff. For shoes, put on the piece that comes from the good news, so you'll be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation, salvation is your helmet, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The, we are given an offensive weapon when we stand against the enemy, which is Scripture. Which is why when Jesus encounters the devil in Luke 4, every time Satan tempts him, Jesus responds with Scripture. This is the only place that we are given an offensive weapon. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And when I hear Christians talk about that, by the way, and this will come important later, they talk like we're in a defensive posture toward the gates of hell. But I don't know if you, if you think about that all the way through, gates are not an offensive reality, they're a defensive reality. So we don't stand still while the gates of hell have been put on wheels and are rolling toward us, <laughs> right? No, we have an offensive weapon. We armor up, we take the sword of the spirit, and we run at the gates of hell to stand and to take back territory that the enemy has stolen from us, right? There's, there's one place where an offensive posture is used, and it's against the enemy. Why? Because I'm protected, I, I'm cared for, I'm safe, I've been given authority, and I have the sword of the spirit, so when I encounter the enemy, I'm called to stand. When I encounter the flesh, I'm called to flee, to flee, 
to flee the scene of the crime, to get out of there, Joseph, in Genesis 29, encounters a temptation of the flesh. Potiphar's wife tries to get him to sleep with her. What does he do? He runs away so fast that he leaves his coat in the room that makes it look like he tried. Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, O man of God, and if you're a woman, that counts as you too. Pursue, flee these things. Instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. We flee the temptations of the flesh. So you're up late at night and you're clicking around and your Google searches are doing something. You don't hang out down there and just change to some other channel on the internet. You run, right? When you're up late at night and you're looking at the piece of pie in the fridge, I mean, Scripture says flee. I mean, the Bible actually literally tells you to take a run, Kyle, right? Don't hang out in the kitchen and think about it. Get out of there, right? When you are in a conversation and you have this desire to share that juicy tidbit, you pretend your phone is ringing and you walk away. You flee it. We stand against the enemy. We flee the temptation of the flesh. And this is important. We avoid the world. We avoid the world. We avoid its system of thinking. Now, here's what that means with the world. Because Jesus clearly says in a variety of places, take heart, I have overcome the world, We neither feel the pressure to withdraw and hide because it might corrupt us, nor do we go on the offensive and try to correct the world and make the world live like the kingdom. Why? Because we actually wage warfare against the enemy, not against the world. And here's how we avoid the enemy. We avoid, excuse me, here's how we avoid the world. We avoid the world by transforming our thinking. By, Paul says um, that, uh, in our minds, there are spiritual strongholds that are pretensions and arguments, ways of thinking that are contrary to the kingdom. And he tells us that we tear down those spiritual strongholds mentally by the renewing of your mind. So let's go back to materialism for a little bit. Your mind has just been programmed to materialism, right? In a way that a sermon every week, much less once a month, much less 10 hours of straight worship could correct. There has to be a lifelong journey of renewing your mind, right? And so we see the materialism, we see the debt, and what Scripture calls us to do is not withdraw, but to take a step back, to not conform to the pattern of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. And here's what happens as my mind is transformed. Then I will be able to test and approve what God's will is. So I'm looking at materialism, and I can say, you know, as I ingest Scripture and as my mind is renewed, that is not the kingdom, because actually the kingdom says, uh, the kingdom says, yeah, he's given you every good thing to enjoy, but it also says that godliness with contentment is great gain. So I step back, I renew my mind, and I'm able to test what God's will is, and I'm able to live often in a way that is counterstep to the world. Whatever foot the world is walking on, we're walking on the other one. Buy, 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 how about give, 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 right? And this is even happening, I'm watching this happen politically. So we're a pretty diverse church, right? Um, and so what happens is you're red and you see the blue, and so you use the red arguments to beat the blue, or you're blue and you see the red, so you use the blue arguments to beat the red. And what happens is you become ingrained in the systems of thinking of the world. And actually what scripture tells us to do is to step back out of the debate Turn off your social media. 
I'm sorry, was that loud? I'm sorry. Um, step back and renew your mind and get with Scripture and pray about that. And then all of a sudden you start to see oh, the, the blue doesn't have it all, neither does the red. So that doesn't mean I come down the middle. It means that I walk in a counterstep to the way of the culture. Right? And it also means, and this is where we're going to move to this next thing, it means that I'm using the right tactic because I'm avoiding getting drug into the arguments. Do you know what Scripture says? Scripture says avoid people who are argumentative. Scripture says warn them once and have nothing to do with them. Could you imagine if I did that to you? If I obeyed Scripture? You're being devices. Stop. You come next week, you start again. Okay. Hmm. So here's the thing. We've got to use the right tactic. We've got to use the right tactic. Because with the world we're called to avoid via the renewal of our own mind, flee temptation of the flesh, stand against the enemy. How many of you are Pokemon players? I meant to bring Jack's Pikachu. Pikachu, being an electric-type Pokemon, is particularly effective against water and flying-type Pokemon. But don't you be bringing your Pikachu to fight, a, you know, to fight an Onyx or a Geodude. Do you know why they're rock and ground types and they'll just obliterate it? Okay, that's confusing and nerdy. How many of you have ever played rock, paper, scissors? Okay, okay, okay. All right, Melissa Weaver, if I was playing rock, paper, scissors with you and I brought out a rock, what would you do to beat it? Paper. Okay, but if I brought out scissors, would you bring the paper? No, you want to bring that rock to crush the scissors, right? What I'm noticing is a pattern where we're using the wrong tactic to engage with the wrong enemy. We're using the wrong tactic. So I have a little chart with the lines crisscrossed. See, here's what I'm noticing. Noticing you're using your Pikachu at the wrong time is what I, that's the word of the Lord for you today. Okay. I'm noticing that instead of fleeing temptation of the flesh, you're actually avoiding it. So you're in the kitchen at night and you're thinking about that piece of apple pie, but you hang out in the kitchen and so you start thinking, don't think about apple pie. Don't think, don't think about the apple pie. And you start thinking about the apple pie and you're like, I wonder if I want to microwave it or not. Ooh, and that texture in my mouth with the ice cream I've got in the fridge. Mmm. Uh, there's a Puritan, Thomas Brooks, I think, has a little book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He calls this dancing on the edge of the pit. Like you won't fall in. So I keep putting myself in this position where I indulge the temptation of the flesh instead of running away. When confronted with worldly thinking that's being blasted us on election, on materialism, on any number of things, we tend to go on the offensive. We say we need to stand up for truth. But did you notice that scripture says be transformed by the renewal of your mind, not transform your culture? Listen, let me be clear. This is a longer double click. Church has a transformative place. The people of Jesus have a transformative place in a culture. We're supposed to be like yeast in a dough, and I get that. But we lose our yeastiness and our saltiness when we go on the footing of politicking. 
we, we keep our yeasty saltiness. And that, by the way, have political convictions, go vote this election, vote your conscience. However, when we fall into the fighting of the world, we, we're, not lo we're no longer walking in counterstep, and what I'm trying to do is get, try, trying to transform Terry's mind. Right? I'm trying to transform Jordan's mind. I'm trying to transform Mike's mind. And scripture says, be transformed by the rule of your mind. I need to not go up and get on the offense of the world and stand up for truth and try, try to get the world to be more like the kingdom. And here's what I'm noticing too. When, when we are confronted by the enemy, which guys is going to start happening. We, Steph and I have had a few significant moments of spiritual warfare and opposition in the last three months that's been pretty intense. And our tendency in that moment is to like want to run away right? Oh, we got to get away from that stuff. Don't, no, no, no. That's the one place where I go to war. That's the one place that I suit up, right? And there might be, a, there might be some conversations about changing minds, but listen, when I'm confronted with the enemy, I stand. I, the last thing I do is take a step backward. I always stand still. In fact, scripture tells me to take a step out in faith toward it. We're using our Pikachu in the wrong moment. <laughs> We're using the wrong tactic with the wrong enemy. And hear me, there's nuance to all of this. This could have probably, most of my sermons, if you've not noticed this by now, almost every sermon could be a four-week series. Here you go. So here's the first thing. Here, here's kind of just three questions, and then Steph will lead us in response time. Um, it's good to ask, what is the nature of the temptation or opposition that I am facing? Is it worldly thinking that is tempting me to behave in a way that is contrary to the kingdom? Is it flesh that I'm tempted to indulge? Or is it the enemy with lies or accusation or opposition that I am called to stand against? What is the nature of the temptation and which tactic is biblically mandated for this temptation or opposition? Addendum to this question, am I using it? Which tactic is biblically mandated for this temptation or opposition? Am I tempted by the lust of the flesh and just avoiding it? Am I dancing on the edge of the pit or am I running in the opposite direction? Am I changing the scene of the crime? Am I engaging with it differently? Like, if, it, if it's something sexual-related and it keeps happening in the same place, wisdom would say stop being in that place, right? So, what is the nature of the temptation? What is the tactic that is biblically mandated? And what is a measurable, intentional step I can take to use that tactic? Okay, so remember, have you ever had this happen? You're playing paper, rock, scissors, and somebody goes, dynamite. We did this in school, right? Like, oh, this wins. Any, am I crazy for this? Did anybody else do this? Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. Let me tell you, it's a trump card, right? Let me tell you what the dynamite is in this game of rock, paper, scissors. It's scripture. It's scripture. It's ingesting this book because here's the reality. When it comes to the, tempta when it comes to the, when it comes to the temptation of the enemy and opposition there, Jesus quoted scripture. The enemy said... Hey, bow down and worship with me, and I'll turn these stones into bread. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. Probably sounded like a good idea. I mean, I've not eaten for four hours, and that would be tempting for me. Jesus says, no. 
man shall live by, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He quotes scripture back. So when we have scripture, we can confront the lie of the enemy, we can confront darkness, right? You have a moment of irrational fear and you can start to declare promises over yourself from scripture. Temptation of flesh arises, scripture says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? So you feel that temptation to gossip and you've memorized a couple of proverbs that come up out of your mind and that tell you to leave, right? You feel that temptation to lust and you kind of quote some passages of scripture, you get away from it, you text a friend, you say, hey, I need some help. And when it comes to the world, we, and we so ingest this book so that upon meditating on it, we can see worldliness coming a mile away, right? We can see worldliness coming a mile away, whether it's materialism or sex or even the political, we can, we can see that coming and say, no, I'm gonna walk in counter step to that. I'm gonna walk in counter step to that. So I'm gonna invite Steph to come and lead us in a little bit of response about that. Father, uh, may your church be equipped through what I've said here today. Um, help, uh, help us to go to war in the right ways. Amen. Every week we do this response time because we want to be like the wise builder. We want to build our life on um, the foundation of Jesus and his word, and we don't want to build our life on the sand so that when the storms come, it just crumbles. And so um, this is pretty, I don't know about for you, but this is a pretty heavy sermon. There's a lot to think about, a lot to ingest, and um, as I was sitting there thinking between the conference this weekend, which was on um, seeing more supernatural work um, within our body and within our own lives, um, and today's sermon, there was a real emphasis on God's Word, and so God is really getting my attention this morning on Am I ingesting the words of Jesus so that I can live like Jesus and so that I can stand against the enemy? Do I have what I need in those moments because of the investment I'm making outside of those moments? Um, so that's just one of the ways that God is, is getting my attention. But I just want to invite you to take a couple of minutes um, and, and just to kind of process with the Father, like, what is highlighted for you? What is getting your attention? Are you struggling with the world? Are you struggling with your flesh? Are you struggling against the enemy? And just that reminder again that um, our enemy is never flesh and blood. No matter, no matter how challenging relationships are, our enemy is never against flesh and blood. And so I just want to invite you to kind of process with the Father what's being highlighted for you and then what you need to do to step into the appropriate tactics and maybe what barriers are keeping you from that. So we're going to just um, take a few minutes. The band is going to play and then we'll move into communion. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who could ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up, up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us standing firm with right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died and was raised to life for us, and he is seated in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours.
Christ who loved us. Amen. Love you. It's been so good to be with you. We'll see you next time.